Uh, well, thank you, worship team. Great song, and I hope this morning that it will be well with you if it is a struggle for you this morning for whatever reason, and we hope that uh, you really are tuned and turned to the God who knows and cares for you. Well, I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but the Bible actually asks us to do a lot of things that are totally impossible to do. You ever thought about that? One of those things is uh, fear not. You ever been in a moment of fear and someone says, you know what? Just stop. Right. That's going to go well. Another thing the Bible asks us to do is love your enemies. That goes well as long as they're overseas. But if they're under the same roof, especially in the moment, <laughs> if they go to the same school, if I used to date them, that's a different animal. The Bible says, hey, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you didn't think either of those were impossible, let's try that one on for size. Be perfect, like your heavenly Father. What is going on? Because there's a command that we see in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul gives and that Jesus gives and is repeated thematically throughout the Old and the New Testament that says something like this. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. Are you anxious? Stop it. Are you worried that you might be anxious? Stop that. Jesus says, do not worry, for who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Like, are you worried? Just stop. At some point, it's like, is this supposed to be helpful? Because I can't do any of this. Fear not? You're kidding me. Love your enemies? Right. Be perfect? Yeah. Don't be anxious? Mm-hmm. Like, what's up? In fact, I might even argue, all right, if you're a Bible person and you know uh, the story of Jesus going to the cross, I might even argue that maybe, maybe Jesus didn't always follow this advice. Maybe I might say, if I was an outside observer, that when Jesus was going to the cross and he prayed through blood, sweat, and tears, literally drops of blood coming from him because he was so in the moment of prayer, asking that the cross be taken from him. So deep into that desire, understanding the torture that was to come, that he was going to be crucified by the Romans, asking that that be taken from him. And I don't know if that goes into anxious territory, but I'm telling you that is a kissing cousin of anxiety. Is it even possible to do what the Bible asks us to do? Don't be anxious about anything. Not only is it possible, but I want to ask the question this morning, why does it even matter for you and for me? Why does it even matter that we're going to spend what will be five weeks talking about something called worry and even titling our series the way we've titled it, which I'll talk about in a minute. Now here's why it matters. Right? Here's why it matters. And this is fundamental because faith and worry are competitors. Okay? Faith and worry are competitors. They're competitors for your heart. They're competitors for your attention. They're competitors for our mind. Faith and worry do not go together in the same person long term. Faith and worry work against each other. And here's what we know in the book of Hebrews. It says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. To kind of flesh this out, think for a minute. You probably know somebody that you would say is a person of faith. They're a person, you might even call them godly. 
There's someone that you might go to or maybe you heard of or maybe you just think, let's just call Billy Graham someone like that if you don't know anybody personally like that. But there's somebody that you can think of who you might say is a person full of faith. Now, think also someone who you think is full of worry. Someone full of anxiety. Someone who you might call a worry wart. I don't want any nudges or elbows kind of going here uh, at all. But think of somebody like that, and it doesn't take you long to probably think of that. Someone who's always worried about what could happen, what might happen, if things are set right, if that's going to go right this way or this way or this way or whatever, and there's tension and stress about them. Now let me ask you this. Do you know anybody who is both of those at the same time? Do you know anybody that you would say, man, they are so godly. I love going to them for spiritual direction. And they are so worrisome. Faith and worry are competitors for your heart. And if Hebrews is right that without faith it's impossible to please God, then it matters what we do with worry, this competitor that's fighting for your interest in your heart, what we do with it. Not only are faith and worry competitors, but Jesus taught about worry significantly in the New Testament. And this is a big deal, what he says about worry. He says at least three things, but maybe more. Here's what Jesus teaches about worry. He teaches, first of all, that worry will stunt your growth. Right? There's a parable that he tells to, to a whole group of people, the parable of the seeds falling on different soils. And the disciples are there listening to this, and he says to the crowd gathered, there's four kinds of a farmer goes out to sow his seeds, and he throws some seed on the on the path, and then he throws some seed on the, the rocky ground, and then he throws some seed on the thorns, and he throws some seed in the good soil. And the disciples are there listening and taking it all in and nodding along, and later when they get him in private, they're like, Jesus, we were nodding along, but we have no idea what you're talking about. Can you give us a hand? And so he explains it, and he explains that the seed that was on the, the path is the devil that comes and takes away the word of God before it has the time to be planted. The seed found on the rocky ground is another problem, and here's the, the seed that falls in the thorny patch. And here's what Jesus says about this, seed that falls in the thorn. The seed that fell among thorns, he's explaining this to his disciples. It stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by lives, and here's our word, our Greek word, worries riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. If worry gets a hold of your spiritual life, of your Christian life, of your growth, you will not mature. This is what Jesus is saying. The seed that's planted into a heart that is dominated by worry will stunt growth. And so what I want for you and what I want for me is I want us to be people who come and grow in faith. Now if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you're not calling yourself a Christian, I still, my card's on the table, I want you to know Christ. I want you to grow in him. I want you to be able to mature in him and develop in him. That's, that's what I want for you. And so here's the deal. Worry will always stunt that growth. And Jesus teaches that in this parable. Jesus also teaches this, that it's going to cause us to lose perspective. Worry causes us to lose perspective. And here's what he says he's teaching another time. He's talking about the end of the age. And in Luke 21, he says this to, to his disciples. He says this, Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties, same word again, of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. 
In other words, the end of the age, that which is coming, will come sooner than you realize because you're going to be so worried, so anxious, so tied up in the things right in front of you, you're going to lose perspective on what is coming. If you're a worrisome person, you're going to miss this. You're going to lose perspective. And finally, Jesus teaches this, worry elevates circumstances while diminishing God. Where he elevates circumstances while diminishing God. This is a famous story. If you know your Bible, you know the story. If you don't, it's a fun little story because it has to do with sibling rivalry in the Bible. Jesus is walking through a village and he comes to a, a, a home. And in that home are two sisters, one of whom is neat and orderly and the other who keeps their bedroom a mess. Probably an older and younger sister, I would assume, but not pointing fingers. All right, we'll leave that one as it is. Their names both begin with M. Their parents like to do the, uh, the one-letter uh, naming thing. All right, so we had Mary and we have Martha in this home. And Jesus stops in this home, and what happens in the moment is that um, Mary recognizes this is a special moment. Jesus is in my home. And Martha realizes this is a special moment. Jesus is in my home. I better vacuum. I better clean up the countertop. We better start getting a meal together. And Jesus, can you please tell Mary, she never helps me anyway. She's just sitting there at your feet. Can she come at least vacuum and clean up because you're here? And here's what Jesus says to Martha. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. Worry, the same word, shows up throughout the New Testament. And Jesus teaches on this worry, that it will stunt our spiritual growth. It's going to help us lose perspective if we don't get on top of it, and it's going to elevate our circumstance and diminish our God. And this is what Jesus teaches. All right, now, with all that being said, all right, with all that being said, we are going to take five weeks and try to talk about worry and anxiety because what I want for you is I want for you and I want for me to keep getting on top of this so that we can be people who grow in our faith and our knowledge of God. We're using this um, Killing Chicken Little uh, titling. Uh, whether it's good or bad, you can be the judge. I want you to remember it. And so maybe that will accomplish that. You may know the children's story of Chicken Little. I read the book quickly out there in the lobby. There are a variety of Chicken Little stories that are told. The one in the back is a little calmer than the one that maybe was originally written. The story in the back has um, the, the chicken, the story of the basic story, the chicken, acorn falls on the chicken's head. The chicken is alarmed by an acorn. It says the sky is falling. We've got to go tell the king. Gathers up all the farm animals that they can find and goes and finds a fox who says, you probably don't know the way to the king. You want to tell the king the sky is falling and you're sure it's happened because you've been hit in the head with an acorn. Let me take you to the king. The original story has the fox taking all the, uh, the animals to his den, never to be heard from again. That's a little too graphic, I guess, for our children today. I don't know. So the one in the back says, well, they took him to the den, and then all of them ran away because they knew it was coming. Like, like that, doesn't, that doesn't work. You can't do that. Anyway, I'm going to rip the last page out of that book back there. But the point is, the acorn falls, and we're going to make a big deal out of a little thing. And we're going to start worrying like crazy. All right. Ask the, the question, 
by the way, that you should be asking somewhere along the line, which you might be even now, and that is a really big question with only three small words, and that is this. What is worry? If we're going to talk about worry, and we're going to use this metaphor of Chicken Little as an example, what does it actually mean to worry? Uh, what, what do I do? Because some worry or anxiety is good, right? Like if the fire alarm started going off right now, would there be any anxiety in the room? And with the anxiety, would that be an ungodly anxiety? No. Like that is good worry to have. That's good anxiety to have. If there's something in you that kicks in, it's like, man, there's a fire in the building, I'm going to act because I'd be anxious if I sat here. I mean, what if I'm like, hey, I know the fire alarm's going off. I just got 20 more minutes. Hang on, guys. Hold on. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, you're getting anxious as we go. Some anxiety can be good. So what does it actually mean when we talk about worry? I'm going to be really simple, and I'm, I'm just going to use the, um, believe it or not, this is the simplest definition of the, the Greek term in the New Testament for worry. Right? And it's really simple. And it says, worry is undue concern. It's as simple as that. And as profound as that. It's undue do concern. This is different than no concern. Undue concern does not mean you have no concern. It means that your concern has now become undue. Uh, some of you are sending your kids to kindergarten this week. I am sure there's some anxiety about that, depending on if it's the first one or not. If it's like the 15th one you're sending kindergarten, you're like, man, I've been counting for years. But if it's the first one, there's some anxiety. That's fine. Listen, that's okay. It becomes undue anxiety when you board the bus with your kindergartner, right, and go to school with them in the bus. Like, now my concern is going over the top, and I'm unduly concerned about the things that I can't control. Some of you are concerned about a doctor's appointment coming up. I know that. And I think there's some legitimacy to that. That means that you will act or behave in a certain way. The doctor says, you need to cut down on intake this and take the meds. You're going to act in a certain way because of the anxiety. It's undue concern when you cannot sleep for weeks because you're overcome with that anxiety. Now we're talking about undue concern. Now, we are a nation that does worry. You should know this. Here's some stats on worry in the United States, okay? We're a worrying country. The National Association for Mental Illness put it this way. They said that there are 40 million people in the United States who have anxiety disorders. These are diagnosable disorders. This is not your run-of-the-mill everyday anxiety. We're talking now diagnosable medical conditions. 40 million people in the United States have that. Now, additionally, women are 60% more likely than men to have anxiety disorders. The reason for that is men rarely think about anything. What's there to worry about? We got one job to do. Ladies, you're thinking about like 14 things at one time. There's a lot to worry about. No, I'm just kidding. But that is true, though. This is true. What I said is, is not. But women are generally 60% more likely than men to have anxiety disorders. And anxiety disorders come on earlier, usually, than the age of 21. Now, to add to this, uh, Liberty Mutual Insurance, believe it or not, in, in May of 2016, this year, they ran a, like a, a, a peer review research, 20-year review of uh, psychological literature on worry and anxiety in the United States. And here's what they said, that 38% of people worry every day about something. 38% of people, so 4 in 10 basically, worry every day. Usually in the morning or late evening, there's everyday worry. That goes on. Four out of ten people worry, competing for your heart and attention. And finally this, older people tend to worry less than younger people. Isn't that interesting? It's something for us to learn, 
right? Older people are like, yeah, you really, I'm still alive. I dealt with that. I know it's troubling for you, but listen, you're going to be okay. Uh, older people tend to worry a little bit less than younger people. Worry is so prevalent, and I love the way that Michelle Newman from Penn State said it. She put it this way when she was talking about worry. She said, worry, people get caught up in, in the worry itself. It becomes so habitual, I call it a process looking for content. Very interesting way to put that. It is a process that continues to cycle through my mind. I must be worrying about something. I've got to be thinking about something. What's going on? Uh, the kids, school, money, relationships, work, thinking about something. I'm always processing, and I've got to get content. Oh, I'm worried that I'm not worried about something. Always, I need to be worrying about something. So that's a process always running in the background. I've got to get some content in there. I've got to get some content. What can I worry about? Ooh, election. Phil, that's going to go for a long time. A lot of content on that. All right. I mean, I was just always putting content into my worry process. And this is what she says. That, that habitual worry is like that. I've got to fill the, the, the process, fill, fill the machine. This is part of what we deal with and part of what we do. Right? Now, finally, I'll say this. Uh, let me try to clarify, because I think this will help draw out a little bit more about worry and anxiety, because if we're not careful, we can become really super spiritual about this in a hurry, and I don't want this to be a super spiritual deal. I want this to be, really be fleshed out exactly what we mean. You have to ask the question, where does worry come from? And not all worry is created the same. Some worry is environmental. Take the example of the uh, fire in the building. We would all share an immediate worry about this building being on fire. If you have children that are not sitting next to you now, you will worry more about them than someone who doesn't have children. That's an environmental moment, and it's not an ungodly thing to have anxiety, if you will, in that kind of moment. There's some environmental worries. There's also worry that comes from part of our character. That's a deeper piece. This is a, this is a deal. This means that over time... You have chosen, I have chosen habitually to begin to worry as a default behavior. When I'm out of control, part of my character is shaped and formed by anxiety. I just begin to worry. It's not environmental. It's just kind of become a part of who I am. It's become a character issue for me. Might need some rooted out. Now, here's another one. This one might be a little controversial, but whatever. We're going to put it on the table. We need to talk about it to be clear. There's also some medical background to worry as well, all right? Listen, when I have a headache, I take Advil. Maybe you do too. Anxiety disorders are a mental health issue that should not be stigmatized in any way. I just want to put that out there. That some of this anxiety, you may be someone who suffers from an anxiety disorder. Listen, don't let the church heap guilt upon you for anxiety. Take the Advil. I mean, I, mean, I mean, this can work together. All right? We don't just, just assign Advil to me when I have a headache. I also have to ask the question, why am I having a headache? Right? I mean, is there too much stress? Are there other things going on? But nonetheless, I'm still going to pop the Advil. Like, understanding this is a part of the deal is an important part of how we process a conversation about worry. Fourthly, there's also a spiritual component to worry. And that's what I think the church can handle, the church can deal with. That's where I'm going to focus. But because I'm only going to focus on a spiritual background or foundation to worry, and I'm not a medical expert, right? And we're going to talk maybe a little bit about character and maybe a little bit about environment. But I'm not an expert over there. But we as a church are going to talk more about spiritual. I don't want you to think that that's the only solution to worry is be more spiritual. It's not that simple. All of these contribute to worry and anxiety at a whole variety of levels, right? So just kind of rest easy with that. 
piece, all right? So with all that being said, that's a lot of background, but here's why I wanted to start here, because when you start talking about worry and anxiety, you can get hyper-spiritual in a minute and make everybody feel guilty that you're not doing enough. And everybody's worried that I'm going to worry. We've got to talk about exactly what we mean, all right? Now, with all that being said, know that we're going to kind of focus on some of that spiritual deal, that spiritual background, and maybe kind of root into the character a little bit. And to do that, we're going to go to the Gospels uh, and then also go to uh, the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bible with you, that's a long intro to get to this point, but I invite you to turn to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the pew right uh, around you there. The book of Philippians is a small little letter that um, the Apostle Paul wrote to a small church in Philippi. And in there, we're going to see a key passage that we're just going to uh, anchor to for five weeks. Philippians chapter 4. Um, beginning at verse, we're going to begin at verse 4 ultimately, but Philippians chapter 4 is where we're going to start here this morning. Um, And if I didn't say it, if you pick up a pew Bible, that Bible is our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd be glad to have you take that, um, because we believe that the Bible uh, is authoritative, valuable, uh, has living insights and knowing God and knowing ourselves, right? So Philippians chapter 4, I'm reading from the New International Version. And let me tell you um, contextually quick what's going on. Let me, if you have Philippians 4 there, go ahead and look at verse 6 in Philippians chapter 4, and you'll see the opening phrase in that, um, in that sentence is the phrase that I threw up on the screen at the beginning. It says, do not be anxious about anything. Now, we're going to get to verse 6 next week because the phrase continues, and we're going to talk about that continuous continuous phrase next week. Right now, I want you to know that that is the, the, the center point of our text. Today, we're going to back up from that and come to the beginning of where he begins his thoughts to get to the idea that we shouldn't be anxious about anything, all right? So we're going to pause it on verse 6 there for a second. Contextually, verses 1 to 3, you should know, because I'm not going to read them. You can look at them if you want to. But verses 1 to 3, Paul is writing to a church in which two women are arguing with each other. Their names are, I don't even know how to say them, Yodia and Syncti. I don't know any people named that today. Anyone know? No, I'm not going to. Maybe you do. All right. That was, anyway, Yodia and Syncti are their names, right? And here's what Paul writes to them. He said, I urge, I urge Yodia, if that's how you say your name, and Syncti to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, their, their argument evidently is big enough that it's causing some kind of division that's rising to the surface that Paul, who's not even there or present, knows that something is going on. So this is a significant enough deal that it's causing division and tension within the church. And so Paul has to address it in his letter. Now, what I find very interesting is that Paul doesn't actually address what the conflict is. He doesn't take sides. He doesn't even invite conversation about that. He doesn't say, please set up a uh, you know, a, a meeting of listening for Yodia and then Sinkti and, you know, have the elders gather and convene, whatever. He just says, I urge them to agree with each other in the Lord. And what he's essentially saying is, Yodia and Sinkti have more things that they agree on than they disagree on. And the big thing that they agree on is the Lord. They need to agree in the Lord. And let the other things remain nameless, and fall to the side. They need to agree with each other in the Lord. And it's in the context of this that he begins talking about anxiety and and worry. And he says, in light of that, he says in verse 4, 
begins a phrase this way. Now you can see if you're in your text, chapter 4, verse 4. After talking about Yodia and Sinkti and their argument, he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice, with an exclamation mark. Simple phrase, simple statement, rejoice. It shows up a lot in the New Testament. That word actually shows up, believe it or not, 74 times in 68 verses in the New Testament. Rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice. It, it, it's a simple meaning. It means uh, be happy in the Lord. Take delight in Him. Enjoy His character. Find satisfaction in Him. Like, it's, not, it's not hard. I mean, I'm just using synonyms in the English language, but it, it's what you would think of when you think of the word rejoice. You just won the Olympic gold medal in whatever, man. Rejoice in the moment. Enjoy the Lord. And Paul's commendation from the beginning is rejoice in the Lord. I want you, if you're arguing, to agree in the Lord. And now, listen, rejoice in Him. Find the goodness of His character in the middle of the circumstances that want to draw you down. Like, rejoice in Him. Bring it back to Him. Hail Him. Give to Him the glory. Do His name, if you will. Like, find in Him the goodness that is our God. Rejoice in Him. And then, as if we didn't get enough, He's like, I'm going to say it again. Because maybe those in the back didn't hear me. Rejoice! Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Now, this is a, this is a big statement. And it's, it's such a big statement. It's, a, it's an easy statement to spiritualize. I, I would doubt that this would go over well if Paul would have gone to the garden when Jesus was praying in the moment of sweating blood. Like, Jesus, rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. What are you, a fool, Paul? This is not the moment. This is not the time. You don't tell someone deep in, in pain like that to Rejoice. And so the timing, the sensitivity of this message is very important. But here's the principle. The principle is this, that Christians are encouraged to nurture gratitude for God's goodness despite our circumstances. Like Christians are encouraged to nurture in our hearts gratitude for God's goodness despite the circumstances. So, let me, let me lay this out. Because again, this can be a really spiritual statement. This can be super spiritual and make you feel really guilty in a hurry. But let, let me draw this out. Like, in our family uh, right now, many, some of you know, and I don't know how many of you all know, but um, in our family, um, just this, this weekend, really, and I don't know if, um, I don't think my in-laws are here today. They are here. Yeah, there they are. Yep, there they are. Look at them. Look at them. Um, okay, so in our family, um, for Deb and Vernon, um, after today, they're going to go up and see uh, their, their son, Victor, my brother-in-law, who's coming out of prison for the first time you know, in 10 years. You think there's anxiety in the family about that? What does reentry look like? You think there's any worry about how do you re-engage with someone like that at all? You think all that I need to tell myself is rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again, rejoice, and then all of a sudden that's a thing that calms all anxieties? You think I should just say, hey, what was that thing about uh, nurture God's goodness in the middle of circumstances? Didn't he speak about that? This, this is a big deal. It's true, but in practical reality, this takes time. This can take weeks, months, seasons to really, to really kind of 
cook into and bake into our heart, if you will, so that our soul is really touched by the flavor of the depth of this. This is not a microwave meal. This is a long cook thing. Like Season your soul with this discipline of nurturing a perspective that God is good, even in the middle of difficult circumstances. You know, remember like it was yesterday when we came back from the doctor after uh, Jen was pregnant with our uh, middle child, Liana. Hey, Liana. Twelve years ago, 13 years ago now, and the diagnosis was this. Hey, um, you may not know what this stands for, but it's BPS, bronchial pulmonary sequestration. One of the lungs, the lobes in the lung uh, shouldn't be there. There's an extra lobe in the lung. And by the way, if there's blood supply to that, which there is right now, that will grow and that will push the other organs in the, the chest cavity apart. And there's a 95% fatality rate for children like this. Rejoice in the Lord. No, not the time or the place. I'm telling you, driving home, and for the next several weeks, this is still true, but this takes time to season into that moment of my life. I will say that. That I I don't come home from news like that and be like, ooh, I shouldn't worry. All right, God, I must be a spiritual failure because I'm worrying. I come home, I'm like, God, teach me. Because right now, faith and worry are competing for my soul. I need your help. Like, this is true. But how I season it, how I teach it, how I live it. It's going to take some time sometimes. This is the deal. The Christian who wants to grow develops and nurtures that discipline of even in the moment of great strain and stress, saying, I still want to see God's goodness through this. And this is why Paul begins, rejoice in the Lord always. Start here, please. Find his goodness in the middle of your anxiety. I'll say it again. Rejoice. And then he goes on. He says in the very next verse, and he makes a statement that at first as I read that, I'm like, this doesn't fit at all. Like, Paul, were you just, you have ADD or what is going on? How does this connect? The next statement is very profound and very beautiful and and very fitting. And he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Like, how does that fit with anything? Then I realized what a gift that statement is. Because here's where that statement fits. If I want to know if I'm growing in my faith, if I want to know if I'm growing in a moment of anxiety, here's how Paul connects the two. Let your gentleness... Be evident to all. As you are dealing with your anxiety, are the people around you seeing you as someone who is long-suffering, patient, forgiving, gracious, in the middle of all the junk and pain and stress that's coming to you? If that part of my heart is not being nurtured to see God's goodness, I'm going to fight against life and throw some of the junk back at you. Maybe you don't deserve it, but I'm going to be stressed. And so here's the gift of that statement. It is a test for me to say in the middle of my most stressful times, when I do not feel like any gentleness is coming from me at all, there's a sign that something is wrong. 
I am not a source, if I'm not a source of gentleness for my family, for, for you, a place where, see, James uses this very word to describe wisdom that comes from heaven when he writes the book of James. Wisdom that comes from heaven, he uses this very word to describe it as being gentle, reasonable. This is the word he uses. Let your gentleness be gentle. And so if in the middle of this anxiety, I'm not feeling gentle, man, it is a beautiful test to say, man, God, I'm off. I need to back it up to find some goodness in you right now that my gentleness can be evident to all. And then he concludes with a statement in verse 5. Four words there that you see there in your text. He says, the Lord is what? Near. The Lord is near. At first I wondered if that was a threat. Like, you better behave right because the Lord is near. But I don't think it is. I think it's more like the kid who's exploring the swimming pool for the first time and can kind of walk into the, the shallow end, uh, walk in and walk out easily, and kind of walks in a little bit, and then what does the kid do? Turns around, makes sure mom or dad are still there. I got my toes in. Maybe something will happen. Mom, dad, you're near. Because you're near, I can do more than I realized. Because you're near, I have confidence. And this is what Paul offers. Life is going to throw this junk at you. The Lord is near. Turn around in the pool and look, He's here. His goodness is here. Your anxiety is high, your worry is high. I get it, but come on. The Lord is near. He's here. Let that be a comfort to you in the middle of worry and anxiety. So here's the deal. If faith and worry compete for our hearts, then every worry is a chance to grow, right? Like if faith and worry compete for our hearts, then every time you're tempted to worry is a chance for you to grow. Every time. Every time you're tempted to step into worry, I know I've got a competitor. I want to be a person of faith. <laughs> but I'm really drawn down to be a person of worry right now. And I want to be someone who grows. I want to be someone who pleases God with my life. So I want to be someone of faith. God, help me see this. And so here's, here's what the deal is. Every time... You're tempted to worry. I want you to, to see it, not just for the struggle of what it is, but as an opportunity to grow. And if I can offer to you a prayer that can be helpful, consider something simple like this. God, please help me see how I can rejoice in you right now and take the undo from my concern that I might rest in you. Help me to see how I can rejoice in you. What is good about you right now that otherwise I'm missing? What is it that is good in you that I'm missing? That I can rejoice in you. And please help to take the undo from my concern. Not to take all my concern. You're still going to be anxious about Junior going to kindergarten. The health stuff might still worry you at a certain level. Worry is undue concern. God, please take the undo from my concern and help me to find peace with you. This is where Paul begins. He says, don't be anxious, but I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to invite you first. Rejoice in the goodness of God. Let your gentleness in the middle of that rejoicing be evident to all. And remember, the Lord is near. He's here. He sees you. Next week, I'm going to talk about one more thing that will help us deal with anxiety in an even different way that I think would be very good. So looking forward to that. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the time 
to open the conversation about anxiety and worry and to see the importance of it for what it is. A constant run-in in our lives, the daily things that we run through that compete with our faith and that threaten to push us into undue concern where we take things on ourselves, where we lose perspective and elevate our circumstances and diminish your goodness. Father, tune our hearts, teach us and season our hearts with faith, with belief in your goodness and your sovereignty, even where we are tempted to most strongly reject and kick that back when we don't believe that you're sovereign over our nation, over our health, over our boyfriend or girlfriend, or over our spouse, over our children, the places where we are most ready to give up and to give in to anxiety and stress. Father, may our days be ones where we see your goodness underneath that which stresses us. We recognize that you are a strong, everlasting, caring loving, close Father. Give us a courage to believe, to trust, remembering that you indeed are near. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.